Knowledge is power. And the power to control what people know is the ultimate power. Because when you can control what people know, you can control what they do, how they act, what they believe, and what they buy, especially what they buy. For years, scientists have known that radiation can be harmful, but they weren't sure about the type of radiation that comes from wireless devices. Now they know. Radiation from wireless devices can cause cancer. But most people still don't know because the wireless industry has been able to control what people know. This is the story that everyone should know about, and this is Green Street. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Green Street. Doug and Patty Wood and our network of scientists, researchers, health professionals, public health experts, politicians, authors, activists, and others all here on Tuesday mornings to help you understand a bit more of what's going on around you and how you and your family can live a better, safer, healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. Today on Green Street, we're going to talk about one of the most important scientific studies in history, a study to determine whether or not wireless radiation, the kind emitted by cell phones, tablets, laptops, smart meters, 5G antennas, baby monitors, and all other wireless devices, could cause cancer. Most people have never heard of that study, even though if they had, it might have changed the way we live today, surrounded by wireless devices. That's all coming up later on this edition of Green Street. But first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? Three really good articles. You know, sometimes I have to dig for, for some good articles that I think are really relevant to what we do here at Green Street. But, but these three are all great. Not this, not this week. Cool. The first one was published in the Washington Post, written by Juliet Ilperin and Daryl Fears. It's entitled, Deadly Air Pollutant Disproportionately and Systematically Harms Americans of Color. Nearly every source of the nation's most pervasive and deadly air pollutant disproportionately affects Americans of color, regardless of their state or income level, according to a new study. The analysis of fine particulate matter, which includes soot, shows how decisions made decades ago about where to build highways and industrial plants continue to harm the health of black, Latino, and Asian Americans today. The findings of researchers from five universities published in the online journal Science Advances provide the most detailed evidence to date of how Americans of color have not reaped the same benefits as white Americans, even though the country has made major strides in curbing pollution from cars, trucks, factories, and other sources. The particles studied have diameters of no more than 2.5 micrometers, one thirtieth the width of a human hair, and can become embedded in the lungs. Known as particulate matter, or PM 2.5, they account for between 85,000 and 200,000 premature deaths each year. The deck is stacked against people of color for almost every emission source, Joshua Apt, one of the authors and an engineering professor at the University of California at Berkeley, said in an interview. The recipe we've had for improving air quality for the last 50 years, which has worked well for the overall country, is not a good recipe for solving environmental inequality. The study found that black people are exposed to 21% more fine particle pollution compared to average Americans, while exposure was 18% greater for Asian Americans and 11% more for Hispanics. 
White Americans, by contrast, have 8% less pollution exposure than the average. For decades, the voices of communities of color have been the last heard within the predominantly white conservation movement. But President Biden has pledged to change that, saying he will take racial disparities into account when deciding which road projects taxpayers should fund and which power plants should be constructed. The Trump administration repeatedly minimized the disproportionate impacts of air pollution on communities of color, according to documents obtained by The Washington Post, and last December chose not to tighten national standards for fine particulate matter. It spent much of its term seeking to either zero out or make deep cuts to the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice, which works to evaluate and address pollution in communities of marginalized people and the sources that cause it. Christopher Tessum, the paper's lead author and a professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, said Monday that it will take a sweeping set of policies to address the disparities. It's not like there's one type of magic bullet, he said. Systematic bias extends even to what sort of natural defenses these communities have against a warming climate, according to a separate study published Wednesday, which found that 92% of low-income communities have less tree cover than wealthier ones. This is particularly pronounced in the Northeast. Robert McDonald, that study's lead author and the Nature Conservancy's lead scientist for nature-based solutions to climate change, said researchers used satellite and digital imagery to determine that tree cover was on average 15.2% less for low-income U.S. census block compared to a high-income one. Poorer areas were hotter by an average of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Neighborhoods with less trees are hotter, and hotter neighborhoods are more deadly in heat waves, McDonald said. And inequality in tree cover is also inequality in climate risk. These are the kinds of communities that are hit especially hard by COVID-19, where residents who lack affordable health care already suffer from the kind of ailments that make them especially vulnerable to toxic air pollutants like benzene. Activists and scientists alike are pressing the Biden administration to take swift action to address these inequities. Yet it remains unclear how sweeping and overall the Biden administration will attempt. The president's infrastructure plan, which targets disadvantaged communities and those of color, needs congressional approval. And while the EPA is moving to tighten mileage standards for cars and SUVs, it has not indicated what it will do on heavy-duty vehicles, which account for just 4% of traffic, but 60% of the transportation sector's fine particle emissions. This has always bothered me as we drive along on the highway and we see dump trucks and buses and you yeah. know tractor yeah. trailers and any industrial vehicle polluting like crazy i know and every car Big. has to every year have an inspection and make sure that their emissions are lower than the federal regulations Really amazing. It's going to be sixty percent. Yeah, sixty yeah. percent of the pollution comes from those vehicles. It's going to be interesting to see what Michael Reagan, who's the new EPA administrator, who's a black man, will you know will deal with this because clearly um, you know it's been a problem that's been accumulating for years and years under, I'm sorry to say, white administrators. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's not fair, but it's the fact. Right. right. That's right. So anyway, so we'll see what he does. So cool. interesting. All right. What else okay. you got? So this is an interesting one, too. Um, published in Civil Eats and written by Lisa Held. And the title is, Is the U.S. Doing Enough to Address the Meat Industry's Role in Antibiotic Resistance? 
In December, as COVID-19 cases were spiking again, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, released its annual report on the volume of medically important antibiotics sold for use in animal agriculture. Despite the distraction of the pandemic, experts and advocates who track a different public health threat, antibiotic resistance, took note. Although ag sales of antibiotics had been steadily dropping since a peak in 2015, the report showed that for the second year in a row, the trend has now reversed. Overall sales were ticking up, driven by the pork and beef industries. I wasn't surprised, but I was disappointed, said Lena Brook, the director of food campaigns at the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC. The beef and pork sectors have been the highest users since the FDA started releasing species-level data. And we haven't seen any new commitments to reducing use from producers in either of those sectors. In response, in January, a coalition of organizations, including the NRDC, issued a call for urgent action from the incoming Biden administration to act on the antibiotic-resistant crisis as swiftly as it will surely act on the COVID-19 crisis by setting a national target to reduce medically important antibiotic use in livestock and establishing a system to track it. The call turns up the flame on an issue that's been simmering for years, with health experts and agencies warning that the overuse of antibiotics in agriculture is a leading cause of resistant bacteria. The danger is obvious. If antibiotic-resistant bacteria infects humans more often, once minor health issues could become life-threatening. The World Health Organization, or the WHO, identifies antibiotic resistance as one of the biggest threats to global health today. And a 2019 Centers for Disease Control report found antibiotic-resistant bacteria caused 2.8 million infections and 35,000 deaths annually in the U.S. A 2015 National Action Plan to Combat Antibiotic Resistant produced by the Obama White House identified curbing misuse and overuse of antibiotics in food production as a primary goal. And policies since have strengthened veterinary oversight and outlawed the use of antibiotics strictly for growth promotion. But agencies have not banned their use for disease prevention. So the majority of pork and beef producers continue to administer them to all of their animals regularly in food and water. Industry representatives say meat producers only use antibiotics strategically for animal health and that overuse is a problem manufactured by anti-meat advocates. But the slight uptick in the last two years mirrors trends seen in European countries that banned growth promotion earlier. And other data clearly shows routine use in feed and water is still the norm in pork and beef production. According to public health experts, any widespread routine antibiotic use presents a public health threat, and current levels are not sustainable. The pace of change is too slow given how scary the antibiotic-resistant health threat is. It's another global health pandemic that we're living through. It's just unfolding at a much slower pace than the tsunami that hit us with COVID. Neither the North American Meat Institute nor the National Cattlemen's Beef Association agreed to comment for this article. Food and Drug Administration data only shows sales estimates, but producers are not required to track actual use. The FDA has worked with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, on limited studies using voluntary data. The USDA chose a sampling of cattle feedlots and hog farms and conducted surveys on those operations' antibiotic use during 2016. And results from these two different projects provide some insights, although they were completed before the rules prohibiting use for growth promotion went into effect. 
Overall, the reports show widespread routine antibiotic use in feed and or water. In its report on cattle, the agency found 56% of feedlots administered medically important antibiotics in feed. Among large feedlots, 78% did. Drugs were used primarily for growth promotion, respiratory disease, and liver abscesses, which form because cattle are not meant to eat grain. The most commonly used drugs were tetracyclines, characterized as highly important for human medicine by the World Health Organization, and tylosin, which is in a class deemed critically important. Nearly all of the drugs were given in food and water, suggesting that treating individual sick animals accounts for a tiny fraction of their use. This has been an issue for decades and decades and decades. Yeah, but there's, there's a, a real hand in this story in that we give them the food that we give these animals the food they're not supposed to eat. Right. And then they get sick and, right. or, or they become more susceptible to disease. Mm -hmm. Then we have to give them antibiotics. And those antibiotics are, are the, the same, same antibiotics we that we use to treat, treat really serious illness in yeah. humans. And so we're seeing this. I mean, a lot of scientists and, and medical researchers are saying, that we are moving toward a post-antibiotic era yeah. where no antibiotics are going to be able to treat some of these really, really vicious antibiotic resistant You know, we keep bacteria. reading these articles, but, uh, but not much is being done about it. I, I don't know why they can't require <sighs> mandatory reporting of what these farmers are using. You would think we would have a right to know that. It's all about money. All right. And since it's all about money, let's talk about one more article that's all about money. And then this is my last one. Okay. It's a really good day for news articles about yeah. environmental health. Yeah. Yeah. What do you got? Okay. So this is an article published in the ENE News, and it was written by Ariel Wittenberg. The title is Biden's End Cancer Pledge Begs for Environmental Oversight. President Biden pledged last week to end cancer as we know it a bold promise focused on boosting funding to the National Institutes of Health for a special Advanced Research Projects Agency, Health, or ARPA-H. This new agency would be similar to the Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Agency, acting as a technology incubator by funding high-potential, high-impact projects that are too early for private sector investment, but with a singular purpose to develop breakthroughs to prevent, detect, and treat diseases. I can think of no more worthy investment. I know of nothing that is more bipartisan, Biden told Congress last week. So let's end cancer as we know it. It's within our power. It's within our power to do it. But public health experts who have spent their careers examining environmental causes of cancer say it may not be possible to truly stop cancer without EPA stepping in. The agency has been infamously slow to stop the use of known carcinogens for decades. Those include benzene, arsenic, asbestos, which is responsible for 40,000 deaths per year alone. We know that several chemicals are known to cause cancer in humans and others are highly suspect, said Bob Sussman, an attorney and former EPA official now representing multiple groups in asbestos litigation against the agency. There are many causes of cancer, but if we don't address the chemicals, we won't get the job done. EPA could help Biden on his mission if it were faster to regulate not just asbestos, but also PFOA, phthalates, and bisphenol A, said Linda Birnbaum, who formerly led the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences. 
Listening to Biden's address to Congress, she said she was happy to hear the president talking about major changes in how society functions. But the focus was on treatment and cures, she said. I'm not opposed to treatment and cures, but I think it's better if you can prevent it. Screening isn't prevention, it's early detection. If you want to prevent it, you have to deal with what causes it in the environment. Asked whether EPA sees a role in Biden's quest to end cancer as we know it, the agency responded only, EPA is fully on board with President Biden's agenda. While chemicals can be proven carcinogens, estimating how many cancer cases can be attributed to chemical exposure is more difficult. A person's genetics can put them more at risk of developing certain types of tumors, just as exposure to different chemicals, especially early in life or in utero, can make some people predisposed to some cancers. People can also be exposed to multiple carcinogens over their lifetimes, and some of the people exposed may already be at an increased risk genetically. Margaret Kripke, a professor of immunology at the University of Texas's MD Anderson Cancer Center, who has been studying the environmental causes of cancer for years, served on the president's cancer panel in the early 2000s. The culmination of her work on the panel was a report of environmental causes of cancer that said, quote, the true burden of environmentally induced cancers has been grossly underestimated. The paper also took aim at EPA, complaining that ubiquitous chemicals like bisphenol A were still found in many consumer goods despite growing evidence of links to cancer. Not a whole lot has changed since then, Kripke told E&E News, except that we do know more about cancer and how it works and how chemical exposures work. Unfortunately, she and Birnbaum concur. Not everyone agrees about what type of evidence is needed to prove a given chemical causes cancer. Studies of chemicals' health effects fall into one of two types, animal studies that track tumor growth in lab rats or monkeys, or epidemiological ones that look at real-world exposures in people. But because studying real-world conditions cannot control for all factors, as is possible in a laboratory, the conclusions of epidemiological studies often includes uncertainties. That's true of research into the carcinogenic nature of chemicals like phthalates and bisphenol A, Birnbaum said. You hear a lot of medical people say, well, what happens in animals doesn't necessarily happen in people. But it's not always possible to prove that it happens in people because you just can't expose people to chemicals in a lab, she said. I challenge their assumptions because if you see tumors are happening in a couple of animal species, why would we not think that at least some people are susceptible, she added. Birnbaum said she wishes that exposures to all carcinogens were treated as seriously by the medical community as tobacco smoke, which is well known for its link to lung cancer. Imagine if we had doctors talking to their patients about other chemicals the way they do about smoking and warning them, don't smoke, don't use Teflon pans, don't use water bottles with BPA in them. I'm not totally chemophobic, but why do we let people be exposed to things that we have evidence are problematic? Kripke said, existing funding for cancer research heavily favors studies on new drugs or the genetic side of cancer, rather than looking at environmental causes. I do think it's on the regulatory agencies because there are a lot of things that are clearly carcinogenic that are regulated in other countries that are not regulated here. But at the end of the day, the agencies can only act on the basis of information, and that information ultimately comes from the research efforts. And that's where she hopes Biden's new mission can help. The Department of Health and Human Services did not respond to a request for comment on whether, if approved by Congress, the new agency would emphasize environmental causes of cancer. 
Kripke said in response, they may get a huge infusion of cash and yay for that, but it is still within a system where, at the end, there are a lot of people who want to earn money off this research. You can earn a lot more money off a cancer treatment than you can off reducing pollution. Yeah, once again, here we go. All the money spent on cancer treatment, research, treatment, trying, to find, trying to find a cure for cancer or trying to find a treatment for cancer. Right. Probably not a cure. We don't want cures. We want treatments so that we can keep people we want treatments keep on them forever for your whole life. Well, that's, that's the point. It, that is kind of the standard method of dealing with cancer. Or dealing with many diseases. Right. Don't cure it. Chronic. Find a Chronic find a illness to, is, a, is yeah. a boon to the pharmaceutical industry. I know. Oh, boy. It's very discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. As Patty said in her opening, knowledge is power, and the power to control what people know is the ultimate power. Last week, Patty and I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Ronald Melnick, the senior designer of a 10-year, $30 million landmark study that proved that non-ionizing radiofrequency radiation was capable of causing cancer. It was a blockbuster study because most scientists believed that such a thing wasn't possible. And while the study had been going on, the wireless industry had grown into a giant multinational industry, partly because they had promoted the idea that the radiation from their devices was harmless. It's a bit of a complicated story, but it's an important story people need to know about. Here's the story about the study that should have stopped wireless, but didn't. The year was 1999, and the communications business was really beginning to blossom. The BlackBerry was an essential tool for every up-and-coming business executive. Mobile phones, which had become digital in the early 1990s, were now capable of not only sending and receiving phone calls, but sending texts, accessing GPS satellites, and even playing MP3 music files. Phones were flying off store shelves, and even some lucky kids had a phone of their own. No one was worried about the tiny amounts of radiation that came from these devices. Besides, the type of radiation that they emitted was called non-ionizing radiation. That means it didn't have enough energy or power to do any real harm. The only concern was, like a microwave oven, if you got too close, it could heat your skin. But some scientists weren't so sure about that. There were reports from the 1950s from the U.S. military and other sources indicating that long-term exposure to this radiation could actually cause biological problems that could lead to cancer or neurological problems that could impact behavior. In small laboratories around the world, scientists had been conducting experimental studies to test the hypothesis that this radiation, known as radiofrequency or RF radiation, was harmless. The results were mixed. Some studies found effects, and some didn't. But there weren't a lot of studies and very little money for research. Nevertheless, scientists pursued the question, and by 1999, the issue of whether or not radiation from wireless devices was dangerous had begun to percolate through the public consciousness, eventually reaching regulators in Washington, D.C. 
The Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, is the federal agency charged with developing safety standards for wireless devices, and they didn't know what to do. Was this radiation really dangerous or not? They decided to ask the National Institutes of Health to conduct a study that would settle the issue once and for all. They made what's called a nomination. A nomination goes through a process at NTP. It goes through a, a review by a scientific board to make sure that this is a worthwhile study. The FDA, Food and Drug Administration, nominated to the NTP cell phone radiofrequency radiation emitted from wireless devices to provide a basis to assess the risk to human health. That's Dr. Ronald Melnick, former senior toxicologist at the National Toxicology Program, a division of the National Institutes of Health. I joined the National Toxicology Program in 1980, and the focus of the NTP, National Toxicology Program, was on chemicals in the environment and uh, occupational exposures. The NTP had chosen Dr. Melnick to design the ultimate bulletproof gold standard study that would be able to stand up to the greatest scrutiny any study ever conducted by the National Institutes of Health had ever experienced. After all, even though the iPhone hadn't yet been introduced to the world, there was still a lot of money riding on the outcome of the study. The prevailing assumption at the time was that radiofrequency radiation could not cause any adverse health effects other than by heating. We were aware at that time that there were studies being planned on radiofrequency radiation of the type used for uh, mobile phones. Uh, because this was a physical agent, and my experience had been in chemicals, mm -hmm. I made contact with a group in Colorado, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, to discuss, you know, how, how we might go about doing this type of study. So three of us from NTP plus uh, an individual from the NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, went to Geneva and we heard a presentation made of the ongoing studies. We, we heard what they were doing and they had an exposure system. It's sort of like a Ferris wheel Mm -hmm. of which there's a, an antenna running through where the axle would be. And the rats or mice are located in tubes on the perimeter of this Ferris wheel that turns around the antenna. And because the animals were held in these tubes, because they want to keep them in a certain orientation, they could only expose them for two hours a day while they were in this exposure system. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest today is Dr. Ronald Milnick, former senior scientist with the National Toxicology Program and the designer of the blockbuster study that finally proved that wireless radiation from cell phones, antennas, and other wireless devices could cause cancer. In science, we want to test assumptions or hypotheses, mm -hmm. and I felt that a two-hour-a-day may not be an adequate test of the assumption. So we considered using what are called reverberation chambers, basically similar to a large microwave oven in essence. There is an antenna located within the chamber, and this chamber could be large enough to hold cage racks 
and you have paddles within the chamber of which the radiation is bouncing off the paddles and bouncing off the walls. And over time, it can create a statistically uniform uh, electromagnetic field environment. We felt that this might be a, a worthwhile approach, went through a number of studies to demonstrate there was uniformity within the chamber. And the, the thing about using a reverberation chamber was that the animals would not be restrained. They could be free roaming within cages, so we would not have to limit it to two hours a day. And we could also enable them to have access to food and water as long as the water source was protected because water would absorb the radio frequency radiation. We then interacted with a group in Zurich and went through various modeling exercises to examine what would be the internal exposure in animals from RF radiation within a reverberation chamber. The objectives that I sought within the NTP study was, first of all, we got to test the hypothesis or the assumption that RF radiation, called at non-thermal exposure intensities, is incapable of inducing adverse effects. Is that assumption correct? And the reason that that assumption exists is because radio frequency radiation does not have sufficient energy to break chemical bonds. Therefore, the expectation is you can't, it won't cause DNA damage, and if it doesn't cause DNA damage, it's not going to be a risk other than heating. Mm-hmm. And so we want to test that hypothesis and also provide data that could be used to assess potential human health risks because that was part of the nomination from FDA. This is such an important point, Ron. I just want to make sure that people understand. The point of the study was not to determine whether or not the lab animals might suffer biological harm, but really to determine whether or not it was a risk to humans, and, we, and we do that by using lab animals. Oh, yeah, yeah. This, this is... Uh, it's pretty standard. This is the whole basis for experimental testing. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and understand. You know, we understand that. But I mean, this was we're, this was to determine whether or not there were acute injury, poten- whether there was acute injury potential from thermal effects. Well, it was to see if there is any long-term injury, such as cancer, mm-hmm. uh-huh. from uh, radiation that would not overheat the tissues. Every assumption was questioned. Every hypothesis put to the test. No prevailing theory was accepted without debate. The pressure was growing. Dr. Melnick and his team had to get this right. This was going to be a large study with thousands of animals and needed to cover the most common types of wireless radiation. This was going to be a very large project because we wanted to use the frequencies that were used in mobile phone communication. And these circles are around 900 megahertz and 1800 megahertz or 1.8 gigahertz. Also, there are different modulations used on the radio frequency radiation. 
one is GSM and the other is CDMA, so we wanted to include at least two different types of modulations within these studies. So as you start doubling on modulations, frequencies, and with animal group size in the range of 50 to 100, uh, it starts multiplying quite quickly. So once you had all that worked out, when did you actually start doing the testing? In working with the laboratory, there are a number of things that need to be worked out. For example, developing standard operating procedures that have to go through approval, approval by the animal people to, to make sure that the animals are being treated properly, uh-huh. that, that the facility is clean. It's, uh, it's, uh, there's just a B- whole bunch lot of, of stand- that standards that have to be met. Yeah, right. uh-huh. because we, we, we wanted to make sure that this was going to be as clean a study as, as could be done. Finally, the study was approved. Every I had been dotted, every T crossed, every possible weakness exposed, every question considered, debated, and decided. It was time for the actual work to begin. 3,000 animals took part over several years. Animals were exposed, careful records kept, animals cared for and examined, and eventually there was real data, the currency of science. Facts, figures, diagrams, photos, explanations, and certifications. Results from the chronic study came out around 2016, and at that time, based on a little pressure, NTP released the partial findings from the study. And in that, they held a press conference and announced that they saw increases in, all they talked about at that time were increases in brain gliomas and heart schwannomas. So there it was, in black and white. Cancer as a result of exposure to RF radiation. The same kind of radiation emitted by cell phones, tablets, wireless antennas, and baby monitors. But as with all NTP studies, these preliminary results had to be reviewed by an outside panel of experts, just to be sure. It was two years later, in 2018, that the technical report underwent a very extensive peer review, probably the most extensive peer review of any NTP study. I don't know if you've ever been at an NTP peer review, but typically when they're reviewing chemicals, they can review three or four in one day. Uh, This was a three-day review of just the radiofrequency radiation. Mm. There were presentations made by the engineers from NIST, from the Zurich Laboratory, and the peer review panel. The peer review panel is an external peer review panel. Uh, it's a combination of people from academics and industry, and uh, they were just overwhelmed by the amount of care that went into this particular study, and in terms of the attention to detail on the exposures that were provided in this particular study. 
Well, I can understand. You know, there's obviously there's a lot of interest as to what the results of this study are going to be. There's a lot of money riding on the outcome of this study because yeah. it's such an important thing. Everybody's got one of these phones in their pocket. And, uh, you know, and there's been conflicting information. And so I can understand why, A, why the NTP would take such care to design a study so carefully so that it would be essentially bulletproof. And I can understand why there would be a tremendous amount of interest, even among the, the reviewers, as to exactly what are we seeing here? What are we finding? Let's make sure that we're as accurate as we can be. There's a third factor. The people who do not want to see any adverse effect because mm -hmm. exactly. they Just were what under the assumption that it could not happen. That, that was the assumption being promoted out to the world. And well, that's therefore, been... they wanted to find criticism to any extent possible mm -hmm. so that the NTP results would not be taken seriously. So the largest study ever conducted on wireless radiation, the one with the most careful attention to detail and the most rigorous standards, the one designed to determine the risk to human health, found clear evidence of cancer. The next part of this story should be about how the government called for a pause in the development of more wireless technology, how wireless companies and equipment manufacturers were called to the White House, and a task force established to determine how to reduce the public's exposure to wireless radiation. For instance, could manufacturers make equipment that emitted less radiation? Should wireless technology be confined to certain industries? Should there be age limits on children operating wireless equipment? and who would be liable for personal injury cases. But sadly, that's not the next part of the story. The next part of the story is how the wireless industry circled its wagons, hired PR firms and pliable scientists to publicly question the validity of the NTP study. Demonstrating the power and influence of the industry, even the FDA, which had requested the study in the first place to determine the risk to human health, came out publicly with a statement that this was only an animal study and couldn't be applied in any way to humans. This wasn't really a surprise. In the interim between the original request by the FDA and the release of the NTP's findings, the wireless industry had grown into a worldwide behemoth with tentacles into every crack and crevice of government, from Congress to the Federal Communications Commission. Favors were called in, and government officials responded. Even the press, largely dependent for survival on advertising from the wireless companies, were complicit. Newspaper and magazine articles were written, calling any concern about wireless radiation part of a conspiracy. The New York Times wrote a front-page article claiming that opposition to 5G and other wireless technologies was part of a Russian disinformation campaign. Never mind that the New York Times and Verizon had just inked a multi-million dollar deal for the Times to promote the use of 5G in a new media lab. So the result of the NTP study was literally nothing. The wireless industry blew through what should have been a giant stop sign without even a pause. 
Government agencies that should have insisted on more evidence of safety have abandoned their posts, leaving consumers across the country unprotected from what scientists have proven to be a harmful exposure. And the industry is erecting new 5G antennas in close proximity to homes, apartments, schools, and businesses as fast as they can. So now you know about the NTP study on RF radiation. Dr. Melnick is retired now, along with many of the other people who worked on the NTP study. At the end of our interview, I asked him if he thought there would ever be another study like the NTP study. His answer was simple, no. Okay, well, now we know a little bit more about the NTP study. Quite an interesting situation and a little bit discouraging, but you know what? There's always uh, the hope that people will finally get the message about wireless radiation. All right, so tell us a little bit about these bills that are pending in the New York State Legislature to establish a commission to look at the potential health effects. Yeah, so this is actually pretty exciting, and we, yeah. hope, that it, that we hope that it happens. I mean, we don't have too much time till the end of this session, right? So um, Senator Anna Kaplan uh, has introduced a bill, and uh, Assemblyman Tom Abenante has introduced a same-as bill, so we have two identical bills, mm -hmm. one in the Senate, one in the Assembly. Okay. And this bill will establish a commission, as you said, for the purpose of studying the health and environmental effects of wireless technology. That includes 5G and all previous generations. So it includes 2G, 3G, and 4G as well. Okay, so it would include the NTP study, for instance. A absolutely, would it will include the NTP study, which was looking at 2G and 3G, I yeah. believe. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. mm -hmm. So that is, uh, that's really, really an important thing to do. The commission's going to have 15 members. Um, it's really well, um, you know, spread are they, out. Are they amongst, industry, industry people? There will or? be some people, some industry people, of course, and, you know, business communities. So you're going to get, you know, Verizon and so on in there. Um, and then you're going to have, you know, people with expertise in the biological effects. And you're going to have medical professionals who specialize in environmental medicine and is familiar with, you know, electromagnetics. Uh, electromagnetic radiation or RFR, radio frequency radiation. And they're going to hold four public hearings in different okay. regions of the state. That's really, really important for yeah. them to be face to face. And hopefully, if COVID has, you know, kind of taken a back seat uh, by the time this bill is passed and they begin to set up these public hearings, the legislators will be able to actually see their constituents face to face. That's critically important. Yeah. So hopefully that'll happen. If not, they will have to hold these hearings, you know, on Scott, on uh, on Zoom, and you know that will be less effective. But you know, it's it's important. But still, having the hearings, I think, is yeah, really having important. the hearings is is critical. And, and but the other thing that's really critical is that they're going to be considering two really important questions: what peer-reviewed human, animal, and cell studies are available, and what do they show regarding the potential effects of pulsed wireless radiation on biological systems, human health, and the environment. Um, and then the other question is, what are other countries setting as wireless radiation human exposure guidelines, and how do they compare to the human exposure guidelines set in the United States by the FCC? Well, you know, we already know that in Russia and Austria and places like that, where that you know the, the guidelines are like 1,000 times or 100 times 
you know, lower or safer, more protective than they are in the United States. Yeah. Canada and the United States have the least protective human exposure guidelines mm. at the moment. Maybe this will help. So have there been other states that have done this, having a commission like this to look yeah, at fine we have, we have only one state, but uh, they did a really, really thorough review of all of the available literature, and that was New Hampshire. And so they had their commission, they did their studies, they received their testimony, they did the whole nine yards, and they came out with their report, which was pretty damning, which was pretty damning report. And it's a... Uh, it's one of the things that we are making available, you know, easily. We're just sending a link to all the people that we're talking to um, because they need to see what, you know, what you New mean Hampshire... The, the New York legislators. Yeah, the New York legislators uh -huh. need to see that. They also did a similar thing in Oregon, but they were just looking at the impacts um, to children in schools. And that's why we were so careful about what studies they were actually looking at because they threw out all the peer-reviewed human, animal, and cell studies and they just looked at epidemiological studies. And that was, you know, those studies are never going to give you, they're not going to give you definitive answers, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And so there's always going to be questions when you're looking at epidemiological studies because there's no way to control things in epidemiological studies. Those are real life, you know, situations where there's lots of other factors involved. And so that's, uh, that's something that was really important to get into this New York State legislation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money in Albany coming from the telecoms. Are they uh, going to fight this bill? Have you heard anything, any feedback from... I do. The... I have heard from, uh, you know, some of the offices that they have, been, uh, they have been lobbied by the telecom industry already that obviously they oppose these bills. You know, what? it's just to, to be expected. There's sure. no question. And yes, they are powerful. They're, they are spending a lot of time in Albany, but not just in Albany, but in Washington. And, you know, on the local level, too. M local municipalities are, are very familiar with the, with the telecoms, who are very generous um, with their campaign contributions. And what would be the basis for their opposition? I mean, it's, it's a commission to look at the studies that are out there. That's Why right. would the telecoms be opposed to that? Well, because most of the studies that are out there are showing that there is that there is harm. But I mean, okay. So besides saying, look, we don't like what the studies show. What legitimate kind of argument could they have to say, no, we don't think that the state should look at this issue? I don't think any. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine what the, yeah. what the what the argument would be. I mean, well, it's, a, it's a right to know issue. Right? Sure. We're, we're talking about people's right to know and the right of New Yorkers to know what the scientists know. And this is especially important because of what we just heard from Ron Melnick, where, sure. you know, they went through all this trouble to make this study as bulletproof as they could. And at the end of the day, um, you know, the telecoms just organized a disinformation campaign to make people think that, oh, we didn't really find anything. Well, it's so interesting that so many people know nothing about the potential risks of this technology. I mean, you know, they have been, meaning they, meaning the telecoms, have been extremely successful in keeping this out of mainstream media. Well, because they've pushed the lie that wireless radiation is harmless. That's right. You know, and, and, and even, and, you know, they promote this as scientific fact. 
You know, it's just the wireless radiation isn't capable of creating the kind of damage that they're talking about when, in fact, we've got this terrific study and many others, may I add. Yes, I was just going to say the NT NTP really corroborated um, many other studies that are already out there. But this one was so well designed and so carefully controlled. Uh, and, you know, simultaneously, when the um, when this report came out on NTP, a report came out on the Ramazzini study, which is a, an institute in Italy that the United States government also funds. And this institute did a, a far field study, in other words, an antenna study, a distant antenna study, and found pretty much the same disease endpoints that the NTP study found. Mm -hmm. So that's really important when you combine those two studies the NTP and the Ramazzini study, which both came out, you know, pretty much at the same time in 2018, yeah. that, you know, we have a problem here. We have a problem and we're not addressing it. I mean, there are a lot of problems out there, right? Yeah, there are a lot sure. of problems, chemical exposures and, you know, and heavy metals. And, you know, it's just, there are a lot of problems where these industries or manufacturers are not being regulated uh, when they actually know that their product is causing harm to the public. Yeah. Even and this is just is another, another one of these situations, although this one is particularly difficult for me to, you know, to understand because this is an involuntary exposure and everyone at this point is being exposed because of the build out of these wireless networks. Yeah, especially in the city. Oh, we can't get away from absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, can't get away from it. So what do you think your chances are? And when will you know? Well, I don't know what they have to do. This has to be in the way it works in Albany is that they need to vote this out of committee. So all the committee members on those two committees, the Government Operations Committee in the Assembly and the Internet and Technology Committee in the Senate have to vote it out of committee and then it goes to the floor for a vote. And will it happen in this session? I sure hope so, because the next chance we have is next January, January of 2022. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have the time. I don't think we have time. I don't think that I don't think we can wait. So what can people do? What uh, should they call their New York state legislator? Their Absolutely. Member of the Senate Absolutely. or the Assembly and tell them what? Well, you want to call your legislator for sure. Your legislators, both your senator and your assembly person. And you want to tell them, if it's a senator, it's bill number 5926. 5926. 5926. That's Senate Bill 5926. That's an Anna Kaplan bill, Senator Anna Kaplan. And Assembly Bill 6448. And that is Assemblyman Tom Abenanti. So people just need to call their New York State legislator and say, I really yeah. support this and I think you should vote for it. Absolutely. Right? And co-sponsor it. That's what we need right now. Yes, we want you to co-sponsor this bill and vote for it. It's really, really an urgent matter. Senate Bill 5926, Assembly Bill 6448. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Okay. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Before we go today, I just wanted to say a few words about this station. As you know, WBAI is a community-supported radio station. That means we are completely dependent on you, our listeners, for the funds to keep this station on the air. We don't have corporate sponsors. We don't have commercials. We only have you. You're it. 
Patty and I are really proud to have our program on WBAI on this remarkable landmark of free speech, whether it's talking about the potential public health crisis caused by the rollout of 5G, why fracking for natural gas is something we should stop doing today, how sunlight helps set your body clock to the right time, why adding fluoride to public water supplies is based on flawed science, or why the water in your plastic water bottle may be no better than the water from your tap. Fact-based programs like Green Street Radio are rare in this world, and only your financial support keeps them on the air. The big wireless companies sure don't like it when we interview experts like Ron Melnick, who talks about the potential dangers of wireless radiation. And the oil and gas companies are not happy when we explain why fracking for natural gas just increases our dependence on fossil fuels at a time when we need to stop burning them. Nestle, which owns a big portion of the bottled water industry, hates to hear us talk about the chemicals that leach into bottled water and how plastic water bottles are filling our oceans with tiny pieces of plastic that get eaten by fish and eventually wind up on our dinner plates. But we're not here to make friends with people who pursue profit at the expense of public health. We're not worried about a sponsor who may pull their funding because of a subject we cover on Green Street Radio. We can invite independent experts onto Green Street who can tell the truth about their work without fear, because we are in the amazing position of not having to worry about that. Now, maybe you're a longtime listener to WBAI who came to the station when we did back during the Vietnam War, when the truth about the war was being hidden from most Americans, but was being delivered to the listeners of WBAI every day. Or maybe you came to WBAI in the 1990s when the struggles of Nelson Mandela brought the issue of apartheid to the world, and WBAI was a beacon of truth and facts about what was actually happening. Maybe you came to WBAI in 2001 when most Americans believed that we were invading Iraq to stop Saddam Hussein from using his weapons of mass destruction and WBAI was broadcasting the truth about our actual purpose, which was to protect America's oil interests in the Middle East and for war profiteers to make billions thanks to the ongoing conflict. Or maybe you came to WBAI about 10 years ago when Patty and I became the hosts of a show called Create Your Healthy Home, which eventually became Green Street Radio. Whenever you heard the call of WBAI, we're glad you found this very unique and special radio station, and we are grateful for your support because it's your act of actually picking up the phone, dialing the number I'm going to give you, and making a donation to WBAI that keeps us on the air. I know there are at least five people out there who've been listening to the program today and who've been nodding their head to everything they heard and if you are one of those people we need you to get to your phone or your computer and either call or get online and become a WBAI buddy in the name of Green Street Radio. It's easy to do. You call 212-209-2950 or you can go online to WBAI.org and there's a big sign there that says donate and you click on that. That number again 212-209-2950 212-209-2950 2950. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. If you missed any part of the show, you can always hear it again on our website, greenstreetradio.com. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Ronald Melnick, our engineer, Michael G. Haskins, and all the other people who keep this amazing radio station on the air. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, stay safe, be careful, and be well.